So besides the documents that we have from ancient times, despite the New Testament documents, should I say, and the Old Testament documents that have come down to us, we actually have a large number of other documents from the ancient world. Uh, There are letters, there are stories, there are poems, there are prayers, there are legal documents that give us a a very good idea of what life was like 2,000 years ago. And these have been published in books and you can go and read them to get an idea of what life was like in ancient times. One of the documents that we have is a letter. It's written around 200 AD by an Egyptian lady to a couple whose son has just died. Uh, This lady herself has experienced grief in her own life, and so she now writes this letter to this couple to try and bring some comfort to them. And this is what she writes. Irene to Tyanophorus and Philo. Good comfort. I am as sorry and weep over the departed one as I wept for Didymus. And all things whatsoever were fitting I have done. But nevertheless, against such things one can do nothing. Therefore, comfort ye one another. This is uh, the best comfort that Irene can give. But we must ask, what kind of comfort is this? She says, against such things one can do nothing. And then she says, therefore, comfort one another. How is that comforting? But turn with me to another piece of ancient Greek literature, another letter. This one is written by the Apostle Paul to a group of Christians living in Thessalonica 2,000 years ago who've also experienced loss. And listen to what he says. Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. What a difference to the words of Irene, to Tyanophorus and Philo. And what a difference to some of the feeble attempts in our own world to bring comfort to those who mourn. We're continuing with our series through the letter of 1 Thessalonians. And in this section of the letter, Paul is writing as a pastor, uh, wanting to comfort the Thessalonians because some of their church members had died. And the death of a loved one raises all sorts of anguished questions, doesn't it? What has happened to the person? Are they all right? Where are they? Shall we see them again? And those questions come out of a natural curiosity, they come out of a concern for our loved one, and they also come from our own anxiety because we know that we too one day will die. Now these questions were especially pressing for the Thessalonians because of their theology. 
Uh, remember last week, I mentioned that many of these Christians believed that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime. In fact, at any moment. But now, some of their church members have died before Jesus has come back. And this threw the church into a crisis. They hadn't been expecting this. What did it mean? Did it mean that their Christian brothers and sisters would miss out on Jesus' coming? Would they be at a disadvantage? Would they miss out on some kind of special blessing? Were they perhaps lost forever? And so Paul addresses these questions. He says he doesn't want them to be ignorant. Verse 13, brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be ignorant. And secondly, he doesn't want them to be overwhelmed by sorrow. We don't want you to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. You'll notice that Paul doesn't say we don't want you to grieve at all. Of course we grieve as Christians. In fact, Paul himself experienced sorrow. In the book of Philippians, Paul speaks about one of his friends, Epaphroditus, who was sick, but fortunately got better. But Paul says, Epaphroditus is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Paul said that if Epaphroditus died, he would experience sorrow, even though a few verses earlier, Paul had written, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Uh, knowing that dying was gain wouldn't stop Paul from feeling grief. And knowing that dying is gain didn't even spare Jesus from grief. In John chapter 11, we read how one of Jesus' best friends, Lazarus, dies. And John tells us that when Jesus saw the mourners, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And then when they lead him to the tomb of Lazarus, John tells us that Jesus wept. Now, Jesus knew that in a few moments he would raise Lazarus from the dead, and yet he still cried. He was grieved over death. Death does bring grief and sorrow, but thankfully, Paul says, we don't weep like the rest of the world who have no hope. So what gave Paul confidence? What gave Paul this hope? Well, in these verses, Paul gives us four foundations for hope, four things to dispel ignorance and hopeless sorrow. And firstly, Paul points us to the person of Jesus himself. Imagine for a moment that we're sat in a large waiting room. I'm not going to take too much imagination. <laughs> but imagine that we're sat in a, in a large waiting room, maybe at the dentist or the doctor. And um, in front of us, uh, just over there in fact, there's a door. And uh, on the door, instead of it saying dentist or doctor, uh, this door is labeled death. And as we sit here day after day, week after week, year after year, one by one we see people that we know get up and walk through that door and we never see them again. And after a while we start thinking to ourselves, you, you know, these people just seem to disappear. And so we start talking among ourselves and we ask one another, what is behind this door called death? And so we start to guess, and someone will say, well, I think that beyond that door is a beautiful beach. 
Another says, well, I think that there's just a black pit and you just get swallowed up. And someone else says, well, I think that behind the door there's a, a beautiful green meadow. And somebody else says, I think that behind that door is a room filled with books and a comfortable armchair and a limitless supply of coffee. But actually, none of our guessing sheds the slightest flicker of light on the question of what lies behind that door. Our guesses are meaningless. Each one is just as good as the other. They're, they're of no help at all, in fact. They're simply pooled ignorance. But imagine that somebody got up and went through that door called death, and then after a day or two or three, came back out again. Then that person would be the supreme authority on what lay behind that door called death. And Paul says that in Jesus, we have that person. Verse 14, we believe that Jesus died and rose again and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in him. What gave Paul his hope was the person of Jesus. Jean-Paul Sartre was an atheistic French philosopher who died in 1918. And while he was on his deathbed, he wrote this in a letter to a friend. He said, despair returns to tempt me. The world seems ugly, bad, and without hope. There, that's the cry of despair of an old man who will die in despair. But that's exactly what I resist. I know that I shall die in hope, but that hope needs a foundation. And how right he was. Hope needs a foundation. And Paul says that our hope is found in Jesus' death and resurrection. We can have hope this morning because there is someone who's gone through the door of death and has come back out again. Secondly, not only do we have the person of Jesus, we also have the promise of Jesus. Uh, verse 15. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you. We, we don't just have anyone's word this morning. We have God's own word. If we were to close our Bibles, we would close the door on hope. But no, we've got God's own word to us. And then thirdly, Paul gives us a picture of Christian death. Now, because of the person of Jesus, because of the promise of Jesus, Paul uses a very interesting picture when he speaks about death in this passage. I don't know if you noticed it or not. How does he refer to death? Yeah, he, he speaks about sleep. Three times, in fact, in these verses, he uses the word sleep. So verse 13, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. Verse 14, we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. And verse 15, we who are left till the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who've fallen asleep. Now, is Paul just being nice here? Is, is he using a euphemism? Uh, for the word died. You know, we don't like the word death or died, and so we use nicer words like he's passed away or we've lost him or we speak about my late father. Is that what Paul is doing here? Well, no, Paul, Paul isn't being kind here. He's giving us a vivid picture of what death is like for a Christian. And we know this for two reasons. 
Firstly, we know that Paul isn't just being nice here when he speaks about Christians falling asleep because Paul is using a picture that Jesus himself used. Do you remember? On on a couple of occasions, in fact. Firstly, in John chapter 11, that passage I mentioned earlier, uh, Jesus uh, hears that his friend Lazarus is sick and, and he waits where he is for two days and then he says to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I'm going there to wake him up. And then in Luke chapter 8, there's a a lovely passage of scripture. We read about a a synagogue ruler whose little girl dies, 12 years old, the light of his life. And Jesus goes to his house, and all of the people are stood outside weeping and mourning, and Jesus says to them, stop crying, she's not dead, but asleep. And the mourners laugh at him, They know death when they see it. They know that this little girl has gone past the point of no return. But Jesus goes into her room and he takes her by the hand and he says to her, little lamb, get up. And she does. And this man and woman receive back their little girl whom they thought was lost to them forever. For Jesus, raising someone from the dead is as easy as going into your child's room and saying, come on, it's time to get up. In fact, for Jesus, it's easier to wake up someone from the dead than it is to get my girls up on a morning. (laughs) When they were a lot younger, Karen and Sarah would uh, fall asleep in the oddest places and the oddest times. Um, Sometimes they'd be spread across the couch or lying on the floor. I wasn't a very good parent about that whole bedtime thing. Sometimes they'd fall asleep wherever they were. Sometimes they wouldn't even be at home. Perhaps we'd be at church or we'd be at a friend's house and they'd fall asleep. And what would I do? I would pick them up, put them in the car seat, drive them all the way home, pick them up, put them into their beds. For them, the last thing they were aware of was falling asleep at church. And the next thing they were aware of was waking up at home. And for a Christian, to die means to fall asleep and to wake up in the presence of Jesus. The second reason we know that Paul isn't just being nice when he says Christians fall asleep is because he's not afraid to use the word death. In fact, he does use the word death in this passage, but he doesn't use it of Christians. He uses it of Jesus. Verse 14. We believe that Jesus died. So important to see that Paul doesn't say, we believe that Jesus fell asleep. He says Jesus died. It's a very important distinction. You see, the death that Jesus died is totally different from the death that any Christian dies. Because on the cross, Jesus took the full brunt of sin and death. On the cross, Jesus took our sin and he died our death. He died a death separated from God so that we would never need to be separated from God. Uh, I've used this story before. Uh, I know it's one of my favorite ones. It's about a six-year-old girl whose mom had died. And as you can imagine, this little girl was devastated. Her father didn't know quite how to explain things to her. And worse than that, this little girl became really terrified of death and dying. And one day this father and daughter were walking in town and they came to the edge of a road and this huge truck came thundering by. It made a terrible noise and the truck's shadow blotted out the sun. 
And this girl got a terrible fright and they both sort of jumped back from the road. And the father suddenly realized that this was the opportunity that he needed. And so he said to his daughter, Caitlin, did that truck's shadow hurt you at all? And the little girl said, no. And her father said, which would you rather be hit by, the truck's shadow or the truck? And the little girl smiled and said, well, the truck's shadow, of course. And the man said, well, you know, death is a little bit like that. We only experience the shadow of death because of what Jesus did. Jesus experienced the full truck of death. He took the full force of death and sin on the cross. And because of that, you and I need only experience the shadow of death. All of the horror of death, all of the punishment for sin, all of the God-forsakenness of death, Jesus took within himself. He took the full brunt of death so that as believers we may only taste death. And so death is very different for a Christian. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul looks death right in the eye and he can say, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you go to the catacombs in Rome, you can see the marked difference there between the Christian tombs and the pagan tombs. Some of the inscriptions on the Epicurean and Stoic tombs read like this. While I lived, I lived well. My play is now ended. Soon yours will be too. Farewell and applaud me. Or this one. Bars, wine, and love ruin the constitution, but they make life what it is. Farewell. Then there's this mournful inscription on the tomb of a child. O relentless fortune that delights in cruel death, why is Maximus so early snatched from me? But turn to the Christian tombs, and the sentiments are quite different. Zaticus laid here to sleep. The sleeping place in Christ of Alexis. Valeria sleeps in peace. For a Christian, death means falling asleep. And then fourthly, in this passage, Paul gives us an important preposition in these verses. Everyone remember prepositions from high school. What is a preposition? Preposition is a word that you should never end a sentence with. There are two little words that Paul uses along with the word asleep. I don't know if you notice them or not, but in verse 14, Paul speaks about those who have fallen asleep in him. And there are at least three magnificent, magnificent truths in this little phrase, in him. Firstly, to fall asleep in him means that God presides over our death, the timing of it, the manner of it, the circumstances in which it occurs. It's too important a matter to leave to anyone else. We die through Jesus. It doesn't take him by surprise. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says to his disciples, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground without your father. God is then in control of our death. It's difficult to understand, I guess, but in one of his books, um, John Goldingay, uh, he's an Old Testament scholar, and he, he writes these words. 
He said, I once heard a sermon in which a preacher reflected on the experience of his wife's having a stillborn child. And he preached from Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus declares that even a single sparrow doesn't fall to the ground without your father. The New Revised Standard Version has a part from your father. Never a sparrow falls to the ground without your father knowing or seeing or being there in some sense to catch it. And what Jesus implies is not that God wills the sparrow to fall, wills the baby to be stillborn, wills the brothers to sell Joseph to slavery, wills Judas to betray Jesus. It is rather that God puts the arms of divine love and purpose around such events and makes them part of some pattern rather than letting them remain as meaningless sufferings. So to fall asleep in him means that God presides over our death. Secondly, to fall asleep in him means that we die in the full security of his finished work of salvation. Jesus died and rose again. We too will die and rise again. And thirdly, to fall asleep in him means that those who have died in Christ are in his keeping and will come back with him. One of the questions that immediately comes to mind when someone dies is this one, where are they right now? And the answer is that they are with Christ. In his commentary, uh, William Barclay says, uh, the man who has lived and died in Christ is still in Christ, even in death, and will rise in him. Between Christ and the man who loves him, there is a relationship which nothing can break, a relationship which overpasses death. Now, we're dealing with a mystery here, but many of us, I think, have the idea that when we die, we kind of fall asleep and we stay asleep until Christ returns. But as I understand from Scripture, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Second Corinthians 5, Paul says we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't say you, today you will fall asleep and eventually you will be with me. When Stephen was about to be stoned to death for his faith, he said, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I can't believe that he then fell asleep and is still waiting for that coming of Christ. He went to be with Christ. A believer goes to be with Jesus uh, but their body, uh, their mortal remains, remain here until Jesus returns. At, at the return of Christ, two things happen, according to this passage. Firstly, those who are still al alive are changed. Uh, their bodies are changed into heavenly bodies, which are different from their present bodies, but which still retain some continuity with their present body. A little bit like Jesus' resurrected body. It was the same, but kind of different. I will, I will be recognizable, rather, as Andrew in heaven. You won't think it's Tom Cruise. You, you will know it's me. <laughs> so those who are alive are changed, but those who have died will be resurrected. Their bodies and whatever part of them went to be with the Lord meet up again. Now, Paul speaks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, listen, I tell you a mystery. <laughs> so understand, this 
can't be explained. It is a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For those of you who are mothers of small children, this is the uh, verse of mothers of small children. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. But then in verse 16 and 17 of this passage, Paul says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. How this works, I have no idea. But the main point to get here is that those who die in Christ are now with Christ and are safe with him until we are reunited with them. So the basis for Paul's hope in these verses is the person of Christ, the promise of Christ, this important picture of death and a very important preposition. But after all of that, Paul ends with a very practical conclusion as well in verse 18. He says, therefore, encourage each other with these words. Paul says we're to encourage one another, and hopefully that passage has done that for us this morning, that it's brought fresh comfort and encouragement and hope to those of us who mourn and grieve. But I think there's a challenge here too. You see, the things that Paul has spoken about here in this passage aren't universal. They're only for those who are in Christ Jesus. And here Paul makes a very clear distinction all through this passage between we who believe that Jesus died and rose again and the rest of men who have no hope. And all that Paul has been speaking about is for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who've so identified their lives with his that they die with him and are raised to life with him. This is only for those who've come before God and asked him to forgive them for their sin and who have devoted their lives to him. And so let me ask you in all seriousness this morning, are you in Christ Jesus? Do you have the sure and certain hope this morning that if you were to die this afternoon, you would be absent from the body and be present with the Lord? Are you living with Jesus, opening up your entire life to him? And if not, what's preventing you from doing that even this morning? There is another challenge from these verses too, and that is the reminder to us that one day you and I are going to die. We're all part of the great statistic. One out of every person dies. And I guess this morning I've preached a funeral sermon, and I've done that while you've been here to listen to it, so don't feel that you've ever missed out. (laughs) Because who knows for which one of us the next funeral service will be held? I heard a story about a man who went to visit a monastery and on his way into the chapel, he noticed that there was a freshly dug grave in the little chapel graveyard. And so he said to the abbot who was walking with him, has one of the monks died? And the abbot replied, no, that's for the next one. Every day on their way into the chapel, the monks reminded themselves that they might be the next one. This week I was reading in my Bible where the writer of Ecclesiastes says, it's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. And so we need to pray as the psalmist prays, 
Teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Let me make the most of today. Let me walk with Jesus throughout today because I don't have yesterday and I don't have tomorrow. I have this day. And so let me live it with Jesus to the best of my ability because in the end, how I spend my days is how I spend my life. Who do I need to forgive? Whose forgiveness do I need to seek? Are there things in my life that I actually need to deal with? We have this wonderful gift called today. And one of these days you and I are going to die. And the question we have to ask ourselves is this, can I trust Jesus with my death and with my life? The famous evangelist Dwight L. Moody once said these words. He said, someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't believe a word of it. At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in him. Therefore, encourage each other with these words.